you're anything like my family, uh, then last night was filled with just partying at a level that you've never experienced before. It was, it, we, oh my goodness, it was, it was crazy. Um, it was, it was ridiculous. We, man, we actually, we actually kind of, we kind of, we kind of let loose a little bit and, you know, we put a little bit of wine in our shrimp and, uh, yeah, cook, cook that down out. We cooked the alcohol out though. And then it was just, it was crazy. It was, it was, it was awesome. We, we, we sat in front of the TV and watched sitcoms and, it was like a party like you've never seen before. I'm just telling you right now. And then, and then like 10 seconds before, we just started popping bottles. It was a sparkling cider. But it was, we popped them, though. And, 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 and after that, we, we, we partied the night away with, well, we prayed. And then we went to sleep. But either way, it, it was amazing. So if, if your night was anything like our night, God bless you. Yeah. Um, I'm a, we're going to be in uh, Psalm 95. Uh, I'm going to pray for us uh, real quick. Father God, you are, you are amazing. There is no one like you. I love the fact that you exist outside of time. I love the fact that while we're celebrating a new year, you see it all in one shot, past, present, and future. I love the fact that you have a plan and that you're orchestrating that plan throughout time. And now each year gets closer and closer and closer to the return of your son Jesus. We'll get to celebrate him on a level that we've never celebrated before. I'm excited about that. I can't wait. In the meantime, Father, will you Will you stir us up a little bit in anticipation for your son's return? Will you stir us up a little bit and get excited about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Will you stir us up a little bit about our creator? Will you stir us up a little bit about the rock of our salvation? Will you help us to get excited? Will you create in us a desire to make a joyful noise? Will, will you create in us a mind and a heart of reverence and submission? Will you create in us a life of obedience, will you make us into joyful worshipers today and this year? In Jesus' name I pray. I pray that the, pray that the, my words will be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so as you guys turn to Psalms 90, Psalm 95, give you a little bit of insight. Psalms 95 falls into a select category of psalms that do not have an inscription. And all that means is it doesn't really tell us who the author is. It doesn't doesn't really give us any uh, background or setting. And so therefore, all we know about this psalm is the psalm itself. We, we, We know that once we read it, that it is a hymn. And that just simply means it's a, it's a, it's a psalm of, of praise. It's a song of praise. And typically a psalm of praise is when people would gather together and they would celebrate God for who he is, for being the God who uh, masterminded the greatest architectural 
uh, a project that ever existed, and that's creation. So they would celebrate him as creator, and they would celebrate this creator who is intimately involved with his creation and that he's Lord over all. And so typically these psalms were just a celebration of God. And many uh, scholars who have spent their life writing about Psalms 95 tend to believe that uh, this psalm was a psalm that was, that was read uh, on their journey or on a pilgrimage on one of their many festivals. And so what some scholars would like to believe happened was they would, these, 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 these Israelites would make this pilgrimage to the temple and there would be a priest in front of the temple and there would be a call to worship. And in that call to worship, they would begin to make their way into the gate. And as they got into the gate, there was this now, this call to make a joyful noise. And then there was this, this call to, be, to submit and bow down. And then the priest would give this prophetic oratory speech that was the very words of God. Well, no matter the setting, the hymn still has one goal, to invite all Israel, all of the nations, all of the people to praise the Lord. That was the same then, and it is the same for us today. So today's sermon is an invitation to worship the rock of our salvation. First, with a joyful noise. And second, with humble reverence and submission. And then third, with the life, lifestyle of obedience. Let's read together in Psalms 95. The Word of God says this. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hand formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as, it, as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." So today, God is inviting us, God is calling us to worship him. And the first way he calls us to worship him is to make a joyful noise. Look in verse 1, he says, Oh, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. All right, well, what is a joyful noise? All right. Well, for his, some of you guys who maybe wondering what a joyful noise is. I know for many of us at Delray, well, I'm kind of curious about what a joyful noise is. All right, what is he going to say? Well, here's an example. On January 20th, 
2017, thousands of spectators from all over the world will gather at the foot of the Capitol building to witness the inauguration of the 45th president. People from all over will gather, uh, young, old, rich, poor, all ethnicities will all gather at the foot of the Capitol with eager anticipation. And as they gather, there'll be all kinds of people surrounding them, hurling insults and uh, calling out names and uh, just angry people just shouting at them. But it won't matter because their joy will be unstoppable. And as they gather at the foot of the Capitol, they'll, they'll wait with eager anticipation as our new president will take the podium and they'll, they'll shout his name and it'll be amazing and it will be patriotism at its finest as we're led in unison to say the Pledge of Allegiance and some of the finest musicians around will, will lead us into singing uh, our national anthem. And there'll be just this amazing shouts of joy and there'll be all of this noise and all of this big deal made about our new president. Well, the psalmist is telling us that someone greater has entered our city. He is more than a celebrity who you follow. He is not a president that you vote for. He is not just the king that will die. But someone greater has entered the city. He is the king of kings. And he is here. And we are now invited to come before his presence and sing songs of praise and songs of thanksgiving. So what that means, Delray, is I got good news and I got bad news. I'm going to give you the good news first. The good news is this. If you haven't figured it out, a joyful noise is making a big deal about a big person and just, just shouting praise and adoration to that person. Typically, in this text, it would be when the king entered the city. It would be worship. The good news is this. We were hardwired to make a joyful noise. We were hardwired for worship. The good news is that it's not a cultural thing. It's a DNA thing, even though some cultures have perfected it a little bit more than others. I don't think it's an insecurity thing in as much as we would like to believe. Meaning this, if, if, if I were to put you at a parade to witness your favorite team return home after winning the championship, you would go nuts. You wouldn't care who was around you. If I were to put you at your favorite band and watch your expression as they first took the stage. Needless to say, all I'm saying is this comes natural for us. And although we would like to believe it's a cultural thing or an insecurity thing, the reality of it is we were hardwired for worship. Here's the bad news. At some point, that wiring got crossed where we begin to place other things above the King of Kings. We spent our energy and our praise and joyful noise elsewhere. 
And now when the king who, igno- who, 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 who was inaugurated by becoming flesh arrives, all we can think about is our favorite instrument isn't present. And now when the champ who defeated both death and sin and will eventually defeat Satan arrives, all we can think about is, man, they didn't sing my favorite song. And if they did, they didn't sing it the way I liked. What I'm saying is the wiring has been crossed. And we need a rewiring. We need a reminder of who it is we have been created to make a joyful noise too. And the psalmist does this for us. Look at verse 1. He says, Oh, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. To who? The rock of our salvation. You see, they call him what? What do they call him? You can say it back. The rock. The rock of our salvation. A rock in Psalms 18.2 is a fortress. A rock in Psalms 31.2 is a refuge and a place of safety. You see, the rock of salvation is a rock that saves us and protects us. The king is a rock who saves. Look at Exodus 17, 3 through 6. You don't have to turn to it, but if you remember the story, God saved Israel by allowing a water to come from a rock. He saved them from dying from thirst, even though he didn't deserve it. And then later on in John 10, 4, 4, uh, John 10, 4, 10 it says, Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will never thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I am the rock of salvation. Make a joyful noise to me. Make a joyful noise to Jesus the rock of our salvation. It is in him and him alone that we thirst for and that we are satisfied by. It is in him alone that we find our full. Before Jesus, we were dead men and women. We had no hope. We were headed to hell. Then Jesus, being rich and mercy and great and love, sacrificed himself on the cross rose from the dead, and now through him we have life. Del Rey, if you have tasted the living water, Jesus, I'm inviting you to make a joyful noise. It is in us. It is in our DNA. We were built for this. Now, he does one more thing, the psalmist. He says, I want you to make a joyful noise, but in verse 2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you were overcome with eager anticipation to hear God speak to you? To sing songs of thanksgiving, to be wrapped up in his presence. There is nothing more sweeter and intimate counter 
than to sit at the foot of Jesus. I'm not saying this because I'm this perfect Christian. I'm saying this because I once was in darkness. I once lived in sin. I once followed the God of this world. And then Jesus, he saved me. So to know what it was like to be there, to be dead and now alive, I can, I can honestly say there is no sweeter place than at the foot of Jesus. Yet, there are times if you're like me, it, is, it, just, it just feels like there's a fog over your head. It seems that going to God's word, singing his songs, being around his people, it's just hard work. And it's not desirable. I don't believe it was always easy for the Israelites to make a joyful noise, just like it's not always easy for us. We live in a fallen world that has invested in a lifelong campaign to steal your affections. That's what the world does. It's intended to steal your heart, to steal your joy, and take your eyes off of our creator. And, it, it, and it's very successful. Here the psalmist shows us very clearly. He shows us that in order for, this, for us to fight, in order for us to fight for joy, it must be done in community. It must be amongst the fellowship of the saints. Look at it. Verse 2, he says, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise with him, uh, to him with songs of praise. Can you imagine being at your lowest point, being at your darkest hour, and someone walks up to you and they say, oh, come let us sing to the Lord. And you say, nah, not today. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. I'm not in the mood. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Your only response is why? I have nothing to sing about, nothing to be thankful for. Why? Well, if him being the rock of our salvation is not enough, the psalmist gives us two more reasons. The first is he is our great God, and the second, he is our great king above all gods. Look at verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Verse 4. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are, also, are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. How does the psalmist know that God is a great God and a great king above all gods? Well, he looked into God's hands. The psalmist is saying there is nothing that God, that does not belong to God because he created it. You cannot go high enough or deep enough to find space where God doesn't exist. Nothing is beyond God's reach. His almighty hand is massive. Nothing is beyond his control. Everything above and below and in between 
is his. He owns it. It belongs to him. And if you go to the depths, which in this, in this text means unsearchable, untravelable, it's too deep to even go. There has never been anybody that's gone this deep. And for some strange reason, if you find yourself there, you will find God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, ruling. There is nobody like him. And the psalmist is saying, make a joyful noise to that God. So when you're at your your darkest and when you're at your lowest, remember, we serve a God who is the rock of our salvation. He is our refuge. He is our protection. He is our safe place. We serve a king of kings where there's no other king like him. He is impeachable. He rules for eternity. And we serve a God of gods. Now keep in mind, what this is saying is, he's not saying there are other gods and God rules over them. There's only one God. And, and that's why he is the God of gods. That's why we make a joyful noise. So when you come here on Sunday and you're sitting here, you're like, man, why do we sing so many songs of uh, why, 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 do, why, do we, why does Garrett pray so long? Right? Right? Why do we have a second night service? Why do we sit here on Tuesday mornings and Wednesday mornings and just go through the Bible line by line? Because he is the God of gods and kings of kings. And he deserves to be worshipped. And God is inviting you. No, he is calling you to make a joyful noise. The beauty of this psalm is the range in which we are given to worship. So point one, we are invited to worship the rock of our salvation, our great God and king above all gods with a joyful noise. But now that invitation, that call has extended just a little bit. And to our second point, we are also invited to worship with reverence or humble submission to our maker and our shepherd. Look at verse six and verse seven. It says this, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are his and we and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The psalmist is giving us a second invitation to worship. But whereas before it was a loud celebratory and eager anticipation to go before the great God and king with thanksgiving, just that quickly it has become more personal and more intimate. The priest has invited you into the gate. You are standing in the court. And he says, oh, come. The priest is formally inviting people to enter into the presence of God. Whereas earlier the invitation was to come with a joyful noise, the priest invites you to come now with reverence, bowing and kneeling. You see that in verse, verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Both are physical acts that demonstrate a posture of profound reverence. 
Reverence means respectful submission, an attitude of mind, resulting in affection and esteem to the person which, is, it, which it is directed to. So for, for us, it is one thing to talk about going to the presence of God. It's one thing to get excited and make a joyful noise. It's another thing to be in the presence of the Almighty God, to lay before him and to submit to his will, not just with our words, but with our minds and our hearts. In other words, we are being invited to worship God with our minds. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? Like, my thoughts are acts of worship. My thoughts. Not just what what I sing and the instruments I play, but my very thoughts are pleasing, can be pleasing to God. It means that we are eager to be in his presence. And as he reveals himself to us, our view of ourselves and man decreases and our awe and reverence to God increases. In such a way, we are willing to set aside our will and submit to his will. The cool thing about this is David understood this. David had reverence for God. He, he, think about it. It, was, it wasn't until the, 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 the giant and the Philistines started mocking God. That's when little old David picked up the stones and said, you are not going to mock my God, even if I got to die. Isaiah understood it. Isaiah understood reverence just in the first sight of God. He immediately had a clear view of who God was and who he was. He said, I am a man of unclean lips. I live among the people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. John the Baptist understood it. So when the the Pharisees tried to, to, to provoke him to anger and they came to him and said, Jesus is baptizing more than you, what was his response? He said, so be it. May I decrease so that he can increase. Even Jesus understood it when he taught us to pray. When he said, he said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is inviting you to worship him through humble submission to his will and lay aside your will. Why would you do that? Why would you hold this God in such a high reverence? Why would you spend your days and your hours just thinking thoughts of, of, of this great and big, beautiful God? Well, if the rock of ages, rock of salvation is not enough, if him being the king of kings is not enough, if him being the Lord of lords is not enough, the psalmist gives us two more reasons. The first, because God is our maker. Look at the end of verse six. It says, um, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He created you. He designed you. He orchestrated your birth. You are not a result of a cosmic collision. You are not here by chance. Before you were born, he thought about you. It's crazy. Before you were born, he thought about you. And then he stitched you. He stitched you together in your, in your mother's womb over a, a, over a short period of time. God created you. He is your maker. He is our maker. Matter of fact, he deserves to be reverenced. He, 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 he deserves to be 
uh, held in high regard. He deserves to be awe. Anybody that holds the patent on a human eye deserves to be worshipped. Second reason, God is our maker. Uh, First reason, God is our maker. Second, because he is our shepherd. Look at verse 7. For he is our God and we are his we are his pastor and the sheep of his hand. Man, that's covenant language right there. That's Old Testament, good old Old Testament covenant language. You see, it says in Jeremiah 31, 30, 30 uh, and, and uh, actually, before you even go there, it says uh, in uh, Exodus uh, 19, 4, 4, 5, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. The problem was Israel couldn't keep the covenant. They couldn't couldn't obey him. They had a hard time doing it. Israel failed to obey. They broke the covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33, God remains faithful, and he promises a new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will put put it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And And then in the New Testament, that promise is fulfilled in Jesus. When Israel would sing Psalm 95, they would know they had access to the covenant-keeping God. But that access was limited. Today, we can sing this song with full access because our shepherd is Jesus. John 10, 11, it says, The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. John uh, 10, 17 through 18, he says, Jesus says this, he says, I, I, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to take it up. I have authority to take it up again. And then in John 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. God, our maker and our shepherd, he is inviting us to worship him in such a way that that only he deserves. That only someone who stitched your heart together deserves. And only some way who, who is our shepherd who would lay down his life for you deserves. So God has invited us, he has called us to worship him with a joyful noise. He is also now, in the second point, we saw that he, he has called us to worship him with reverence. But now, in the third and final point, God is calling us to worship him by listening and obeying. Go to, go to start at uh, the end of verse 7. He says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. Though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So immediately when you read that final section, two things are very clear. There is a sense of urgency, and then also he is calling us both to listen 
and obey. So immediately he starts the, he starts the verse off with today. And so as, as, the, as the people are, have entered the court and gone as far as they can go, the priest has instructed them to lay prostrate in the most humble, humble position they could possibly lay on their knees, heads bowed, face on the ground. And he says, today, that means right now, that at this very moment, what you're about to hear is extremely important. I need you to listen to it. I need you to obey it. And so he says, hear this. And then he goes on and he begins to speak as if it is the very words of God. And the way he does that is he reminds them of a time where their fathers had hardened their hearts against God. He says, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. God here is warning his people not to forget what happened in Exodus 17, 1 through 7. And the consequences. So if you remember in Exodus 14, uh, right after after, uh, uh, God had freed them from the Egyptians, they get right up to the water and the, the, the Egyptians come to their senses. They say, hold on, wait. Why would we let this thing go? Why would we give up this good thing? And they chase after them. And then, it, then the people see the Egyptians chasing after them, and they begin to grumble in their heart. Man, why did you bring us here, Moses? And then even in, uh, even in Exodus 15, after God makes a, a safe passage for them through the Red Sea uh, and, 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 and drowns their enemies, they get to the other end, and Moses leads them in worship. And then at the end of that, they start to complain again. They start to murmur in their hearts. And they said, they said, man, it, they tasted the water and they realized it's bitter. It's kind of like, like that moment where you go to make Kool-Aid and you find out you don't have any sugar. Right? Like, God, why? Maybe that went over your head. I don't know. Uh, uh, when you find out that... Uh, um, um, you've been free, you've been, you've, been, you've been rescued, and then you go to drink this water, and it's bitter. And the only thing they can do is grumble in their hearts. And so what does God do? He tells Moses to throw a log of all things, something that is bitter, into the water, and then he made it sweet for them. And then you get, even get to verse 16, uh, I mean chapter 16, where they grumbled um, and they said, well, at least as slaves in Egypt, we had meat. Crazy. So God, uh, God, made, God made bread rain from the sky. Now we get to Exodus 17. The people grumbled again. They complained to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? So that we could die of thirst? Once again, Moses warns them of the seriousness of their grumble. He says, why do you test the Lord? Here, testing of the Lord is refusal to take the Lord at his word instead of of taking Moses' warning to heart. They begin to grumble even more, and that grumbling now leads to them to even doubt the fact that God is even with them. And they say, is the Lord among us or not? Implying that the covenant-keeping God had abandoned his sheep even though they saw with their own eyes, even though 
They saw the Lord's work with their own eyes and they filled their bellies with food that fell from the sky, even though they breathed breath that God had given them and protected them so that they could still live and worship him. They still grumbled in their hearts and their hearts begin to harden. Some of you might say, well, what does it mean to harden your heart? I'm glad you asked. It says this, uh, well, first, the heart... What is the heart? The heart is the core of our being, the motives of our actions. And so when we harden our hearts, when our hearts become hardened to God, it is, it is, it is, it is, it is the conscious choice not to obey God. When our hearts have become hardened, it is a conscious decision to put God aside and follow our own will and go our own way, to do what is right in our own eyes. You see, Uh, John H. Eaton says this, the hardened heart is one without a living relationship to the Lord, no longer hearing, attentive, trusting, centered on his will, but only awake to the immediate desires of our own impulses. Israel had hardened their hearts. How did they harden their hearts? They, They begin to first grumble against God. They begin to complain against the rock of their salvation, their king, their, their, their creator, their good shepherd, the one who freed them from bondage, who uh, protected them every step of the way. They grumbled and they complained against him. Uh, they were not satisfied by him and his work, let alone did they worship him. You see, our biggest roadblock to accepting this invitation to worship is a heart that is progressively hardening, that is hardening when we begin to grumble and complain against God. Today, where in your life are you grumbling? Where in your life are you discontent and not satisfied? Is it in, is it in your marriage with your spouse? Is it with your kids? Is it with your job? Is it in your warm car while you sit in traffic and complain? Today, the psalmist is giving us a warning. Whenever God gives us a warning, it is grace. It is an act of grace. Because he is reminding us that your grumbling is hardening your heart in such a way that you will no longer be able to enjoy me. You will no longer be able to be in my presence and worship me. So the question is this, can a Christian harden his heart? Can a Christian's heart become hard? Well, the author of Hebrews believes so. Let's turn together to Hebrews 3, 12. Starting at verse 12, he says, uh, after he quotes the very, the very psalm that we've read, he says this, take care, brothers. So he's speaking, he's speaking to fellow Christians, and he's, and he's warning them. And the author would not warn them if, their hardened, if, if a hardened heart was not possible for them. And so he says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you 
an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So the author is warning us, yes, a hardened heart uh, for the Christian is possible. There's a very dark and there's a very lonely place. And he is giving us a warning. And the way he does that, he's, he gives us signs that it's beginning to happen. He says, he says, first thing will happen is evil and subtle sin will begin to creep into your life. Unrepentant sin will begin to creep in your life. And then he goes on and says, an unbelieving heart. Isn't that what the children, isn't that what the Israelites did? They, they begin to test the Lord. They begin to wonder if the Lord was even really among us. And then finally being led away from the living God. They hardened their hearts by the deceitfulness of sin. And so in your life today, where do you see yourself in that downward spiral? Are you at the place where uh, uh, little sins have begun to creep in that you just haven't repented of or haven't confessed are you, are you at the place where you start to have an unbelieving heart, where you start to put God to the test? And is putting God to the test is not waiting for the Lord to give you, to, to show you uh, where and what to do. Putting God to the test is, is testing, uh, is, 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 is after he's already revealed, you, revealed to, to you who he is, it's been to get, begin to say, well, if you're really God, then do this. Right? Have you begun to do that? Have you begun to doubt if God, if this, this God who is both at the heights uh, and also at the depths, who exists between all of it and rules as sovereign God, have you even begun to doubt if that God is present? Or maybe, maybe you've been led away and you find it very difficult to be in the presence of God. Or maybe for you today, at this very day, you say, Thomas, I'm already there. My heart is already hard. Can I encourage you today? For you to even admit that to yourself is a ray of light. It's a small light, but it is a ray of light. It is God's mercy to you. Chase after that light. Ask God to give you more of that light. Make yourself known to the people here. Share with people what's going on in your heart. And ask God to give you mercy, bring you into the light. Do not give up. Do not surrender. Do not tuck your head in and say, it is what it is. But fight. Our God is a good God and he loves you and he wants you to be in his presence. He wants you to be in a, have a joyful noise. I will also say this, it being hard for you to get in your word and to make a joyful noise does not necessarily mean you are in a life of sin. It just means that God has you right where he wants you, where you can continue to depend on him, and you can continue to serve him, and you continue to worship with the people of God, 
who can remind you of how good and how sweet God is. So I want to end with this. After, after these people, who I sincerely believe were not followers of, of God, who were not believers, hardened their hearts, it says this, and this is why I believe that. Go back to uh, Psalm 95. He says this in verse 10. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. It is important to understand here that, that once again, that uh, um, God's wrath is reserved for unrepentant sinners. And so the people saw and they heard with their own eyes and they still would not respond with faith. For those people, they do not get to enter God's rest. In the Old Testament, uh, that rest was the promised land. You see, God always uh, made, made three promises. He said um, there will be blessing, and there will be seed, and there will be land. He said that blessing will come in the form of, 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 of protection from, 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 from your enemies, and, and, your, and, and your seed will grow, and it will be a, uncountable, and you will flourish. But he said that will take place in a specific geographical lot of land that God had set apart for his people. And the most beautiful thing about that promised land was was not that they would be able to live off the fruit of the land and not be able to benefit from God's protection, but the beautiful thing about that was God was there. They would enter that land and they would be in his presence and they would trust him and they, they would serve him and they would worship him and through that they would be in his rest. He said, for the people that have hardened their hearts, you will not get to experience this rest. That's exactly what happened for 40 years. Until that generation died off, they did not get to experience that rest. The people who sung this psalm did. But even then, as you go on, you'll find out that even they were disobedient and they constantly were being taken hostage and removed from the land. And being uh, uh, ruled by kings that were not give, that, that that were not ordained by God. It wasn't until Jesus came. It wasn't until Jesus came that we we get to uh, um, benefit from His presence. And so today, if you've if you've if you've tasted from the the living water, if you've been taken from life to death, if, if, if you have experienced this big, beautiful God, we get to worship him with a joyful noise. We get to, we get to, we get to respond to him with our minds, with a, a mind of reverence and awe, and, and we get to respond to him and worship with obedience. We get to experience his rest, both today and when he returns. Take joy in it. Have hope in that and let it stir you up to worship him. Let it stir you up to celebrate him in ways that you've never celebrated him before. But if you haven't, if you, if you haven't tasted this living water, if you have not responded 
to, to the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus with faith, if you haven't responded to our Savior Jesus with faith, if you haven't responded to him with repentance and asked him for forgiveness of your sins, that is you today. I encourage you to search your heart. I encourage you today to listen to what God is saying. He's saying he loves you. He says he wants a relationship with you. He wants to be your God. He wants to be your king. And if you want to know more, I encourage you to talk to one of the elders here or one of the members here, and they would love to tell you more. Del Rey, the God of our rock and salvation, our great God and our king, our maker, our shepherd, has invited us through a life uh, 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 and through the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus to worship him. We've been called today to make a joyful noise, to submit in reverence, and to worship the God of our salvation with, with obedience. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. Even in our sin, even in our grumbling, even in uh, our dissatisfaction with you, you still make yourself known to us. You still give us warnings. You still surround us with people that love you. You still remind us of how good you are. Thank you, Father. I pray that at this very moment that we can make a joyful noise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.